This is Die Panda Die. I'm Liz. And I'm Maddie. Join us as we follow two geeks with otherwise worthless biology degrees as they use evolution, development, and animal behavior to explore the weirdest aspects of the natural world and our own. Yet again, I have to insist that my biology degree is not fully useless, considering I am a biologist. Not well, only. I am not currently a biologist, and you know, that causes a lot of issues for me, because some days I feel like I don't really know my own identity. You know, who am I? Am I a biologist? Am I a policewoman? Am I a, a politician? You know, what's, what's my future career destiny? Sometimes I don't even know what phyla of the animal kingdom I'm in. And this is a big problem because tomorrow is the big choosing ceremony where we all have to go and choose our phyla. Okay. And so I took this aptitude test that's supposed to tell me whether I'm a fungus or an animal or a plant, but it gave me multiple answers. Maddie, Maddie, I think I think I might be convergent. <laughs> Very nice. You're having a good time with my crisis here. Oh no, that's really good. <laughs> I don't fit in any single one group. That means we need to overthrow the animal kingdom, right? We need to overthrow the animal kingdom. In case anyone has not read the young adult novel Divergent, this is our new spinoff, Convergent. (laughs) Convergent. Convergent evolution. One choice can define your evolutionary history. Gosh, we're such nerds. We're pretty great, no. So, if you've ever taken a biology class, you might have heard of evolutionary convergence. And there's a lot of common examples out there that make it into textbooks, but a lot of people don't really have an understanding of what's the difference between a convergent trait and a homologous trait, and how convergence in general is defined. Convergence is a phenomenon where evolutionary lineages develop similar traits independently of one another. This occurs because nature presents animals with different niches they can fill. Think of a niche like a spot on a shelf. Any animal can sit on that shelf if it's the right shape to fit it. A niche is a role within an ecosystem. For example, any ecosystem where there's dirt and worms will have a niche for an animal that can burrow through the dirt and eat the worms. The niche can be filled by a mole or a golden mole, no relation. But since these animals do a similar thing, they need similar bodies. Evolution separately has given them big paws, sensitive noses, and small eyes. It might be good to explain this as a counterpoint to homologs. We talked about homologs in a previous episode, but in case you're listening to these out of order, a homolog is a trait that's evolutionarily conserved. It's found in the common ancestor of two different species, or it's something that's genetic, it's something that's inherited. Whereas convergent traits have evolved independently of each other. There was a similar niche in the environment, and so animals have evolved independently to fill that niche. So a bug's wings and a bird's wings are convergent structures. They're both similar in appearance, and they both do the same thing, but they evolved independently of one another. There is no common ancestor of bugs and birds with wings. However, an example of a homologue would, would be a seagull's wings and a penguin's wings. So they're both, they're both wings, they're both birds, uh, they come from the same ancestral structures, but they don't serve the same purpose. A seagull's wings are used for flying, penguin's wings are used for swimming. Although anatomists would say that penguins don't swim, they fly in the water. That's stupid. (laughs) They're not flying, though. They're in the water. They use the flying motions of other birds to swim. I mean, that's cool, but they're still not flying. 
take it up with an anatomist. I will. Fight, 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 <laughs> fight. I will fight them. <laughs> I will I'll fight. Uh, they're not flying, though. <laughs> That's not... Okay, anyway. Um, oh, so, so for instance, another example. A shark's tail and a whale's tail would be convergent traits, because they're not involved necessarily from... There's both vertebra, but... The tails themselves. Like the tails the, themselves the, are convergent. Yeah, so the the flappy parts of the tails. I'm not an anatomist. I am an anatomist, and I don't know. <laughs> Whereas a cow's forepaw and a right whale's weird bony thing. Vestigial structure. Vestigial structure would be a homologous trait. <laughs> and you think, you think like, oh, well, sharks and whales, and they, they gotta be a lot more similar. But no, sharks and no. fish. Whales are closer to cows. And a fun fact, so for a trait to be homologous, there always has to be some degree of common ancestry in there. However, for two traits to be convergent, there doesn't have to be any common ancestry at all. My hand and a monkey's hand are homologs. They both come from the same common ancestor. The common ancestor of me and that monkey, it had a hand that was a lot like the hands both me and the monkeys have. However... Mr. Spock's hand, despite being functionally identical to a human hand, is in fact an example of convergent evolution. In fact, it's pretty incredible that Mr. Spock evolved to look so much like us humans. (laughs) What's even weirder is that he evolved to look exactly like Leonard Nimoy. I know, right? (laughs) There's just a niche. So this is a cool point of discussion because when scientists talk about aliens and what intelligent aliens would look like, obviously any alien life form can't share any evolutionary homologs with us because we don't have a common ancestor with them. But they could very well display convergent evolution. Any animal that is capable of, you know, operating a spaceship would have to have a pretty complicated brain and would also have to have limbs capable of grasping and manipulating objects. Probably. Although I am thinking, it wouldn't necessarily need to have a brain. We don't know enough about consciousness to say what, like, what exactly that structure would look like. I mean, we'd call it a brain. But you'd need an analog to the brain. We'd need an analog to the brain, but who knows what it would look like. It would have to be some kind of thinking machine. But I think yeah, that's but you would need like, like some sort of bone. Of you would go. need some sort of like muscle. Well, I, as an evolutionary biologist, would say that any kind of intelligent alien would probably look not that different from us. They'd probably have to have a lot of monkey-like bits. Eh. I mean, it really depends on what stage they're at. Maybe they once had monkey-like traits in the past, and now they, their civilization got very advanced, and they've been very advanced for a long time, and so they kind of stopped needing things. They just use their thought beams to move the world around them. Fair enough. Aliens are weird. Aliens are weird, but we should probably get on to some actual things. Real examples of convergent evolution. And so what's interesting is that behavior can also be convergent. So there can be genetic behaviors that show up again and again across different pilots that have evolved separately from each other. As someone in neurobiology, it's actually a very interesting question to me, like, how I can tell which ones are homologs and which ones are convergent? So I'm going to get into some neuroscience, because I really want to. We're going to actually go back to zebrafinch song learning again, very briefly, because it's an example I know a lot about. But so for instance, in Ossian songbirds, the HVC, which is an area of the brain that stands for literally just HVC, it used to stand for something else, but then that became... Obsolete. Obsolete. So not just sense of HVC. Anyway, HVC is used for song learning, but it's not known whether or not any similarities it shares in uh, with the human areas used in speech production. It's not known if those are homologs or what exactly is going on there. So there are some regions that are homologs. So 
the brain areas, the pallidus and some striatal and heliol structures in birds and mammals are homologs. But there are other anatomical differences that make it hard to tell if parallels between song production and speech production are homologous. So are the regions different shape? There's a few different anatomical stuff. So they're like different shapes, roughly. And I imagine there's also probably different neuron subtypes and mm-hmm. different connections. And, and you know, just yeah, spatial or- organization. Yeah, and the last common ancestor of humans and birds lived back during one of those geographic periods whose names I can't remember. But it was way before the dinosaurs evolved. And there's a lot of animals in between Mm -hmm. Uh, that between birds and humans that don't have a complex song production or speech production. So Mm -hmm. it seems likely that there's some convergent aspects there. There's probably some major convergent aspect, but also a lot of these ancestral brain regions might have underlying genetic predispositions that makes it easier for them to be adapted into song learning or speech learning. And so while the language-esque aspects of bird song and human speech might be convergent, the underlying genetic structure that favors these traits arising from these areas of the brain might be homologous. Yep. So sorry, audience. It's not cut and dry. (laughs) You can look at a lot of examples in a textbook, especially anatomical examples and the really classical examples, and say... That's clearly convergence. That's clearly a homologue. But in the real world, it's not really clear which is which. But we can talk about one of my favorite examples of anatomical convergent evolution, and that is the almighty tenrec. What's a tenrec, you might ask? What's a tenrec, Liz? Tenrecs are Afrotherians. This probably means nothing to you. But it's a weird group of African mammals that are all related, but look nothing alike. This group includes aardvarks, elephants, hyraxes, sea cows, sengis, golden moles, and tenrecs. And also, if you have some spare time, Google sengi. S-E-N-G-I-S. We'll do some tweets about it. They are adorable. They look like a cross between a rodent and an elephant. I'd say an elephant. Pinocchio. Because they're more closely related to elephants. And they have really long legs, and they run around, and they're so cute. No, actually, I will say, there is one common feature across these ones. I mean, like, aardvarks and elephants and sea cows. Yeah, there's a lot lot of differences there. But they do all have weird noses. They do all have weird noses. Except for the golden moles, who have a highly... Well, they have a very sensitive nose, but it's not, like, protruding like the others. Okay. So that's a homologue. Weird noses. Yeah. <laughs> There's not a large number of Afrotherian species in general, and there are only about 34 species of tenrec. And you'd expect, since there's so few species, all species of tenrec probably look a lot like each other species of tenrec. After all, there's 34 types of tenrec, and there's 30 species of mice. And all mice, you look at them, you know that's a mouse. Basically, just just a mouse. They're basic mouse. Mm-hmm. It's the mouse they give you in the starting zone when you set off on your quest. Mm-hmm. There's very few incredible mice, I think. You know, what's happening? There's like Stuart Little, and then there's the rescuers. It's like you get your starter mouse, and then like your first quest the Sherlock Holmes is mouse. to feed the mouse, and then like sex the mouse, and then you get some XP for that. Oh, and then you. Um... It's graduate studies, but it's an MMO. 
yeah, actually, that'd be really fun. And then you can, you know, put optogenetic implants in the mouse. And mm-hmm. and then you can level up to, like, researcher. Yeah. We've just described, we just described it, my future career path, essentially. <laughs> Me, this is such a fun game. Does uh, your lab director have, like, a golden exclamation mark floating over her head? Only if you look at her out of the corner of your eye. <laughs> So, the majority of Tenrec species evolved on the island of Madagascar, and Madagascar is really exciting, because it's where that lemur lives who sings that catchy song. We're old. We're so old. 60 million years ago, some primitive mammal washed up on the shore of this island that had literally no other mammals on it, and this meant there were a bunch of open niches. And because there were a bunch of open niches, the Tenrec could evolve to be anything it wanted to be. So instead of mice, where you have 30 species that all look alike, the Tenrec radiated outwards into very different forms, each form adapted to fill a unique niche. Some of these forms are very unique, like the lowland streaked Tenrec, which looks like a hedgehog, but it has yellow lateral stripes and can rub the spines on its back together to make ultrasound and call to the other Tenrecs in its social group. That's extremely cool, and I didn't know that particular detail. They have superpowers. Also, that might be a Pikachu. (laughs) Oh, yeah, actually, no, wait. These are actually Pikachus. They really do look like Pikachus. We need to go to Madagascar and catch a Pikachu. (laughs) (laughs) Pokemon Go, on Madagascar version. Yes. Oh, gosh. We're just actually just throwing balls at literal animals. (laughs) It's like, it's going to be really fun right until, like, it's just... Oh, gosh, they're so endangered. Oh, we, sh- we need to put pictures of these guys on the Twitter. There will be pictures on the Twitter. Oh, another unique thing about Tenrex is that they have cloacas. Why? V, for those of you who don't know what a cloaca is, it comes from the Roman word for sewer. And a cloaca is where all your body's exit holes are located within a single hole. And that's the clean way to say that. Anatomists are filthy. Anatomists are filthy. <laughs> but so is nature. Nature is also filthy. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of different forms of Tenrec, and the interesting thing is that most of these forms look like other mammals who are not closely related to them at all. The large-eared Tenrecs look and behave exactly like rats. The hedgehog Tenrecs look and behave like hedgehogs. They do like the curl-up thing, they... Yeah. Well, they don't do the curl-up as extremely, but they have a similar reflex. Mole Tenrecs look and behave like moles. And here's a crazy one, Otter Tenrecs. So the so-called they're, giant otter shrew. They, they behave like small elephants, actually. It's, it's a misnomer. <laughs> they look and behave like otters, even though they're more closely related to manatees <laughs> than actual otters. And of course, all these guys are super closely related to each other, even though they look nothing alike. This is in part because they wound up on this island with so many open niches to fill. And in filling these open niches, they took on very similar forms to mammals that would also fill these niches on the other side of the world. There are similar roles to play, there are similar resources to exploit, there are similar simply areas to go. The swimming otter mm-hmm. tenrecs, there's a, there's a water niche, there's a place to go, there's, I don't know what, I don't know what they eat. They eat insects. Stuff to mm-hmm. eat. And so as I was looking things up for this, we found a few other fun examples of anatomical convergence that I'm going to go through. And so first of all, koalas have fingerprints that are apparently, well, 
some of the sources I found said, oh, they're indistinguishable from humans, human fingerprints, which I think is probably wrong because they're smaller than humans, last time I checked. Yeah, but in, like, CSI, you only ever get a partial of a print anyway. Yeah. Also, I think it turns out they're not as good for identifying murderers. As, well, like, how many times are people murdered by koalas? Well, actually, we don't know because the koalas could just be framing humans for the murders they commit. Oh my gosh, I got a great idea for a movie! <laughs> oh my, well see, this is, I think this would be like the modern day parallel of the murders at Rue Morgue, where it's like you have these two detectives <laughs> solving this like elaborate nutty mystery, and it's like, how, it's locked in a mystery, how did this murderer escape? And it turns out it was just like a crazed orangutan with a shaving razor, and I think this would be really great and not at all disappointing to modern audiences. Also, that story was terrible for orangutans. Orangutans will not murder people <laughs> with razors. I think that's a pretty rare thing. Um, no. Although, don't have an orangutan in your house. That's a bad idea. To be fair, the people didn't like let in the orangutan. I think it came down through the chimney. <laughs> it escaped from the nearby menagerie. Oh, gosh. Poe is po. weirder than people give him credit for, I think, sometimes. But there, and, you know, with time, everyone just It was forget. his first attempt at writing a mystery. It, it wasn't was. very good. He, yeah, I mean, so he did influence Sherlock Holmes later. He did influence uh, Conan Doyle. Yeah, but Conan Doyle was also a spiritualist, so a lot of things influenced Conan Doyle. Yeah. Next example. Next example. uh, Sugar gliders and flying squirrels. So in Australia, there are uh, marsupials that are called called sugar gliders, and they look like flying squirrels. And in North America, there are sentinel mammals called flying squirrels, and they resemble sugar gliders quite a lot. They're small rodents that leap from trees and have flaps of skin. That's my example. And also, I should point out that when we say sugar gliders are convergent on flying squirrels. It's not like there's one mammal and then all the other mammals are trying to be that mammal. Typically when we talk about convergence, we start with the example that's more well-known and then say, oh, these other examples evolved to be like that. But that's really not the case. The mole and the golden mole both evolved independently towards being good diggers. They weren't collaborating and they weren't stealing each other's ideas. Yeah, they're not they're not intellectual thieves. Mm-hmm. And generally speaking, it's rare that you get this kind of convergent evolution in the same environment, the same literal like place. Is that true? To say like so you don't have golden moles and moles no coexisting. Yeah, you don't. Yeah, because if there's the niche they need to fill, so otherwise it'd be competing if they're trying to fill the same yeah. niche. And when you have two animals who try to fill the same niche, one goes extinct. Either, or it changes its yeah. shtick. And the, well, and then the old lineage that was in that old niche goes extinct. Ah, yes. And lastly, we have, because this is my specialty, some behavioral evolution. So one example, echolocation in whales and bats. Both whales and bats have evolved to use reverberations of sound to track their location and to find objects and to navigate large three-dimensional environments. So bats in the air and whales underwater. And they found genes that seem to link these two behaviors together. Convergently or homologously? I think convergently. And so there's an interest. we were discussing this How earlier. How do genes link something together convergently? I think the thing was that the genes show up in whales and bats, but then not in related species. So the two genes actually converge. Yeah. Oh, that's super interesting. Because normally I feel like when convergence happens, changes in different genes will cause a similar effect. Mm. So like when moles develop, or any kind of burrowing mammal develops those really short, strong forearms, mutations in a bunch of different genes could be responsible for that. So even while they on the outside they look convergent at a genetic level, the genes aren't converging. But it sounds like that's an example where the genes actually convert towards a similar mutation. 
in the same gene. Yeah, I feel like it's probably because the trait that's converging, the sen- it's a sensory modality of... I don't know how much that changes across animals, but I think it's pretty similar type of effect. Mm-hmm. It's acting on very similar neural and genetic substrates. Mm-hmm. So another really interesting anatomical example is river dolphins. And I really like this one because it's an example that's geographically really widespread. So three different times independently in the dolphin family tree, dolphins have decided to leave the ocean and move into rivers. And this was a great friggin' idea for the dolphins, because you know who lives close to rivers? Humans! You know what humans like doing on rivers? Damming them and fishing them and riding big boats down them, so... And eating dolphins. And eating dolphins! And you know what? River dolphins are slow. That's one of their convergent traits. Oh, no. River dolphins are slow. No. River dolphins evolved in South America, India, and China. And that's interesting because they're very widespread. Unfortunately, the Chinese species is now extinct. It was just declared extinct a few years ago. So, yay humans. Mm -hmm. But one of the interesting things about this species of dolphin is that most dolphins have fused neck vertebrae, which holds their head stiff on their body, but lets them move at really great speeds through the open ocean. And river dolphins have unfused necks, which allow them to move their necks and rotate their bodies a little more. And so there was an open niche in these rivers for a slow-moving, flexible dolphin, and dolphin species in the ocean that exhibited these traits moved into rivers all over the world. So I talked about echolocation briefly, but you can also get some very complex behavior that converges across species. And so one of the most complex behaviors in nature is animal migration. Well, I might actually contend to that point. I think it's complex. I guess so. I guess one of the most. There we go. Yeah, that's... I said one of the most. No, no, yeah. So it says in the notes, one of the most. It's not the most. What do you think the most complex animal behavior is? I mean, probably anything humans do. Okay, but that doesn't count. It totally does. Humans are animals. Yeah, but like... Oh, you know what I mean. No. I think migration... And humans migrate too. Well, no. But that's not my point. (laughs) Okay, have you ever tried booking a trip to Europe? It's really friggin' complicated. Yeah, and, I mean, that's that's actually fair. I mean, the, I mean, the thing I hate most about it, what makes it so complicated, is that there's all this damn caribou on the airplanes. <laughs> <laughs> so, the definition of animal migration, it's not just animals moving from one location to another. It's specifically the mass movement of animals during a specific season or during a specific time in their life cycle. And often to specific locations as well. And it's not true in all cases. Sometimes there's a more general general thing, but there's some, there's some animals like salmon and butterflies that have very specific locations they go to, like, you know, like one particular mountain in Mexico or mm-hmm. the one particular river where they were born that's still kind of a mystery. Like, how did, how did you find that? How did you get back there? I couldn't get back there. Lateral line systems are wonderful things. Migration requires a lot of brain activity for because the animals are not only moving through unfamiliar environments and having to deal with that, they also have to move as a group. And migration is risky behavior, because when you're on the move, you're really vulnerable to predators, you're burning a lot of energy, it's a lot safer to just stay in the territory you know. And yet migration occurs across a wide variety of animals in a wide variety of environments. One of the coolest examples is that Alaskan caribou and Serengeti wildebeest live 
in some of the most opposite ecosystems you can imagine, from the Arctic tundra to the East African savanna. And yet both species travel really long distances in these social groups to access important resources. Of course, on a side note, if you look at the tundra biome versus the savanna biome, the way resources are distributed is actually pretty similar, which probably explains the convergence of the behavior. But it's really interesting that they live so far apart. And it's a non-intuitive thing, too. It- yeah, and they have such similar behavior. And also... Whales also migrate, and whales are actually very closely related to wildebeest and caribou. They are all in the clade artiodactyl. Which means? Okay, so these are the, I'm crossing my fingers that I'm right, even-toed ungulates. And if, you know, if we want examples that are not of the hoofed mammals variety, there are birds. There's a bunch of birds that do it. You know about the birds. Everyone knows about the birds. Birds are everywhere. Um, bats do it. Birds do it. Bees do it. Bees don't migrate. But insects migrate. Bees swarm. Bees swarm. Which is similar, well, but that, different. Okay, we, we will do an episode on bee behavior because, holy crow, there's some really interesting They're stuff. They're really there. smart. It's, it's not like this interesting group thought. It's so cool. Anyway. <sighs> They're like little computers. So are we all, really. But these animals have really diverse brains, and yet the ability to travel from place to place with changing weather and resource availability is so highly favored that this ability has arisen in them all. And you have a note. And yes, caribou do have breeding grounds. Okay, cool. Sometimes we leave each other notes. (laughs) (laughs) And so what does all this tell us about evolution, Liz? Well, for me, I think what convergent evolution demonstrates is the importance of selection in the evolutionary process. If a trait is useful in a particular environment, it will occur over and over and over. And again, go back to the moles. There's so many mole-like mammals. And what's cool about this is that when you're an evolutionary biologist, it's really hard to make testable predictions. You know, I could say that, oh, if I take this rodent and leave it in this environment for 10,000 years, it'll turn into a mole. You can't do that. Yeah, you can't. You just super cannot get the funding. Not in this environment. <laughs> so, and it's really important when you're a scientist to make hypotheses and then show that the results from this hypothesis are repeatable. And you can't do this experimentally with evolution because it just takes too long. But if I can make the hypothesis that short forearms will help an animal that's digging. And then I can point to look at all these mammals who dig. And, you know, all the mammals who live like moles have these mole-like bodies. Then I can say, that's the closest I can come to demonstrating a repeated effect. So convergence demonstrates that evolution isn't a random process. And it demonstrates the reliability of evolutionary theory as a whole. What do, you, what do you think? What does, what does convergent evolution tell us about behavior? I don't know. I come from a, a, a very cognitive angle. The stuff that interests me is like, what are the algorithms? What are, what's going on in there? What's the, it's a smaller scale thing. It's not so much how did this come about, but like, how does this work? So I don't know, actually, that's a, that's a very good question. I need to think about that more. 
what can evolution tell us about animal behavior, and especially the questions that interest me? This will be my my personal self journey. This is how science works. Learning. Yeah. <laughs> this is how science works. You spend a lot of time thinking about a question, and then another scientist comes in and it's like, "I've thought about it from this angle." Mm-hmm. It's it's called collaboration. It's collaboration. Oh. Which divergent faction would you be in? What are the divergent factions? Um, you've got the friendly people. You've got the honest people. You've got the Catholics. <laughs> you've got the nerds. And you've got the badasses. Hmm. Well, I think I'm squarely in the nerds, tragically. They're the bad guys. Okay, perfect. Spoiler alert. Great. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> All right. I'd be a badass. Yeah, of course you would. <laughs>